Before we begin the program, a word from our presenting sponsor, Van Cleef & Arpels. This year, the Maison is working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to present the exhibition Garden of Green, Exquisite Jewelry by Van Cleef & Arpels, now on view in the museum's Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals until January 2024. Garden of Green showcases 44 creations from the French High Jewelry House, 32 of which are on view in the United States for the first time. A lush garden of jewelry, this impressive array of precious and ornamental green stones form a dazzling journey that celebrates the beauty of gardens and nature. One area of the exhibition space highlights a diversity of green stones. Another concentrates on particular materials, such as jade, chrysoprase, and malachite. And a third displays a selection of majestic creations set with emeralds. For more information, visit amnh.org slash exhibitions. I don't think it's necessary to tell these people who are coming. It, there's no story. There are couples dancing, but it's abstract. And I don't think you have to tell them that they're not going to see bravura technique. They're not going to see fouettes and pirouettes and leaps. And they're going to see a kind of a athletic, balletic movement style. It's really found movement. I mean, it's a whole different concept. And the whole conceptual idea of it, I think, re registers more. They know it's going to be repetition, but they, do, they know that repetition doesn't mean that I'm going to see the same thing over and over again. It's just the opposite. You're going to see the same thing, but always in a different way. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. It's hard to believe, but we're midway through the eighth season of The Grand Tourist. And since I began this little audio voyage, we've interviewed architects, designers, painters, sculptors, hoteliers, watch tycoons, historians, and even a few guests with a hereditary title or two. In that time, I've come to learn that there's more that unites the disciplines of the well-lived life than divides it. In other words, there isn't much daylight between a great artist or a decorator, or between a jeweler and a couturier, or a choreographer. My guest today is a trailblazing artist on every level. Through her decades of work, she has pushed her discipline forward in fascinating ways. She's not only a dancer, choreographer, and performance artist, but she's also a true American original, Lucinda Childs. An elegant rule breaker, if there ever was one, her spirit of collaboration and ingenuity has transformed postmodern dance. Born and raised in New York, she began her dancing career as a child, heavily influenced by the legendary ballet dancer and Balanchine muse, Tenny LeClerc. Later on, she tried her hand at acting, but returned to dance. And her life changed upon meeting Merce Cunningham, who injected a new artistic spirit to the art form that thrilled her and inspired her to create her own daring works. In the 60s, she was part of the revolutionary postmodern dance company Judson Dance Theater, and shortly thereafter created Street Dance, where an audience looks out a window to dancers across the street, frantically pointing things around them, timed to an audio track heard indoors. It wasn't just performance, but art in the truest sense. And a lot of fun. One of Lucinda's greatest skills is that of collaboration. She partnered with Philip Glass numerous times to create some of her more daring works including the five-hour-long Einstein on the Beach in the 1970s, and then the show simply called Dance, recently revived as part of the Dance Reflections Festival in New York, sponsored by none other than Van Cleef and Arpels. While Dance was as minimal as the music by Philip Glass, it was supercharged by a stage set by artist Saul Lewitt. In all, she's created dozens of works, and even reunited with Glass for the opera 
Akhenaten, in 2020, produced for a venue in Nice, France, that she had to choreograph largely via Zoom during the pandemic. She performed in it as well. I caught up with Lucinda Childs from her country house in upstate New York to talk about the impact of Merce Cunningham, how she would describe postmodern dance to a rube such as myself, the state of dance today as an art form, and the tragic moment when a major neck injury almost ended her dancing career. I wanted to kind of start uh, at the beginning uh, with you. Um, you were born in, in New York City, uh, and I believe you were raised in the Upper East Side, and your, your, your dad was a doctor, and I believe your mom was a, a model. Um, I was wondering what your early life was like, and uh, was it a creative household? Did they support the arts? What, what was that like? Uh, yes, the arts were supported by my father's mother, my grandmother. And my mother and my father's grandmother <laughs> got along incredibly well and went to the opera and went to, you know, the Philharmonic. And she even would get me out of school when I was at the Brearley School so that I could go to the Philharmonic and go to the opera and do, do things that, you know, um, were just wonderful, actually, to be able to do that I remember. Oh, okay. And this was, uh, and you were raised sort of in the Upper East Side, I believe. Right. Right. Do you remember what was uh, the Upper East Side like back then? Was it kind of different than what it is today? Where are you, where you're kind of upstate New York today, but uh, I believe, but um, what was that like back then to grow up there? Well, it was, you know, kind of a upper middle class neighborhood. You know, I had a lot of friends, of course, in the area. I was across the street from the Armory, which is now turned into a big performing center on 66th Street in Lexington. And uh, what was it back then? It was just literally an armory? Literally an armory, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, uh, For people that don't know, that's uh, it looks like a giant castle and uh, quite beautiful. <laughs> but uh, today it's for our performing arts. But back then, they, I guess they held held weapons there. Self um, Salvation arm. Well, I don't know. Yeah. All yeah. All sorts of things going on there. All yeah. sorts of things. Um and what was the, where did they sort of like, uh, you know, encourage you to be creative as a kid? Like, what were they, what was that kind of household like? Well, I was sent to um, acting, uh, children's acting school and dancing school, and I had ballet and, and theater, and I loved it. But they didn't like the idea for me to take it too seriously because they didn't want it to interfere with my homework mm. on the school <laughs> nights. You know, they right. I had to come home and do my homework. Um, and it was, you know, it was a very, um, very, very good school at Brearley, but very demanding. I mean, you, you had to do your homework. <laughs> and, uh, but I was, I was sad about that because I really wanted to be able to, to do more training than I was able to do. And when you, when you took those early classes in, in dance, you know, even as a child, there were those ballet classes. Do you remember how it made you feel and maybe... Was there anything, uh, did it click with you in the way that I hear well, from the, other? Well, the thing in, in this particular school that I went to, it was called a Kinkoid School. It was a kind of a very privileged uh, situation. Um, and to believe it or not, Tannekill Leclerc happened to be one of the ballet teachers that they brought in. The beautiful, gorgeous, she was like a goddess to me. Mm. And I couldn't imagine... Uh, ever being a goddess <laughs> myself. <laughs> but um, it just was like a dream when this creature wandered into the studio and began to demonstrate. Um, and that was, I was about 10 years old at the time. Can you explain, you know, as a mentor, like what you kind of 
like learned from her like what what she brought to to to, to well just class? the whole beautiful mystical marvelous dreamlike quality of the, of the ballet and the first ballet that i uh, that i ever saw was tanakil in uh, apre midi of of jerome robin jerome robbins which is very beautiful which she danced um before her polio yeah and I guess why would you say why was dance important to you at the time? I just could became, you imagine it, like if you had broken your legs or something and someone the doctor said you can never dance again? Um, like what, what would have happened? I mean, like how it means something to you? I'd love to hear about the the importance of dance for you at that time. Well, I did have. Um, speaking of breaking your leg, I had a very serious neck injury, which. Um, involved I had to wear a collar and I had to take Valium I had to do all kind of you know because it was a very very painful situation and uh, I went to a doctor and he said you, you'll have to take Valium and collar maybe for the rest of your life for all I know uh, and um, I refused to accept this I said there must be some kind of alternative and as a result I went to uh, physical therapists, Tai Chi, Alexander Technique, uh, Pilates, you know, you name it, just because, and I was cured, totally cured. I never wear a collar anymore, I have no pain, I'm completely recovered, which has something to say about not just the medical profession, but you know, somehow the body finds its way. I mean, I wanted to heal. I needed to heal. I needed to get on with what I was doing and not just lie in bed with with a collar around my neck. <laughs> and, and you kind of had bounced between acting and dancing for a while. And uh, I, I'm wondering, like, when did you kind of decide that maybe dance was something you wanted to you uh, truly sort of pursue as as a as some as a lifelong sort of career, or is it not that simple? Well, I was. Um, I went to Sarah, Sarah Lawrence College after the Burley School. At that time, I was very, very interested in acting and dancing. You know, I was interested in. And in fact, Sarah Lawrence was sort of ideal because of the performing arts program. And in 1959, the, the guest teacher was Merce Cunningham, mm. and um, I never forget the class. I was I was so inspired because it was connected with the contemporary arts, uh, visual arts, you know, and it's something just completely different. And I began immediately right then in 1959 to, to go to his studio and you would find Jasper Johns, John Cage, Robert Rauschenberg, all these people <laughs> actually physically there in this space. Wow. And I thought, how could there be a better place to be? I mean, this is so, this is really fantastic. And, you know, today, Merce Cunningham is this like, you know, bedrock of what we know of as dance today and the name is so synonymous with dance but at the time was it how do you kind of describe sort of orthodoxy and dance and versus like what he was doing and what he was espousing i was wondering if you can kind of explain you know why he was so inspiring at the time in terms of like what made him different well there was um modern dance which is a very strong movement i mean all of these amazing Modern dancers were in New York. Martha Graham, Doris Humphrey, Jose Limon, Hanya Holm was my teacher, actually one of my teachers. And uh, suddenly, this this was um, uh, an artist choreographer with no narrative, <laughs> influenced by John Cage, uh, and and not accepted, uh, accepted more in Europe, although that was slow to develop. 
but it was a, a difficult a difficult time for him. It didn't affect the fact that he worked, but it affected the atmosphere around working, and it was it was a struggle. And when it comes to you know starting your own career in full swing, I, I'm wondering you know when you're working in the world of of dance and opera at the time, like late 50s, early 60s, what was appealing then to you? Who were you looking up to? Uh, maybe Merce Cunningham was one of them. But I'm wondering like what, what you were seeing out there in the culture, maybe not even in dance, where you were inspired by. Well, the most inspiring thing for me was the fact of the Judson Dance Theater Group, which was just forming at that time. Yvonne Rayner was also at the Cunningham Studio and told me about the workshops and invited me to come. And I saw her performances, uh, which were incredibly inspiring to me, impressive. I thought she was, you know, for what she was doing, um, an outstanding performer who could deal with uh, movement activity that was not necessarily classically associated with dance. You know, she was really stepping outside of this category, which is, of course, part of the influence of John Cage. And she was using text at the same time. And I thought what she was doing was extraordinary and very inspiring to me. And then I was so lucky to be part of that group the, during the 60s. And what was, the, uh, what was it like being there sort of like in the company uh, on a day-to-day basis? Like what was it kind of a typical, typical week like? A typical week a was Judson. you go to your ballet class religiously, and then you go downtown and you, you're in Yvonne's rehearsal and you carry mattresses. It's <laughs> 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 kind of a weird combination. But there's no way we're going to give up our training. You know, we're dancers. And Steve Paxton did a work where I had to eat an apple and rotate on uh, in a bowl of ball bearings. <laughs> I mean, all of this, <laughs> carry Robert Rauschenberg. I mean, this kind of... Um, it was a wonderful, it was, it was such an exciting period, but we would not give up our training. We were dancers. <laughs> and, and, and what was the training like? I mean, I'm just curious, like what, uh, I mean. It was know, a typical da- ballet class. You know, the, um, I was, we happened to be training mostly with uh, Mia Slavenska because we needed a teacher who was, I mean, there were many schools in New York, but Mia taught twice a day. And this was very valuable to me because I felt I'd had so many different teachers at Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> and uh, it was wonderful to have the focus and the concentration of, of, of me of twice a day. You could take classes twice a day if you had the time. And uh, she trained very, very specifically. Monday was a certain adagio. Tuesday was, was the same and Wednesday and so forth. And um, I really needed this desperately. And it was very, very important to me. And, you know, one of your first groundbreaking performances was uh, Street Dance, which has been staged uh, a few times. And I saw a video of uh, a recent, somewhat recent staging in Philadelphia that you can watch online. And we'll put a link, we'll put a link on our site to some people can see it. And to me, I was struck by how lighthearted and almost humorous it was and very voyeuristic. And I'm I'm wondering like how, if you can explain before I, I explain too much, uh, what it was and how people first saw street dance and uh, what it was and how it came about. Yes, well, it was uh, part of the Judson workshop. It was an assignment, actually, by um, well, Robert Dunn was was the sort of the guru of the group, helping us to translate the ideas of John Cage into movement ideas and movement activities and programs and so forth. 
And the assignment was to make a dance that was six minutes. So I thought the interesting thing uh, for me would be to leave the space and return within a period of six minutes. And while I was gone, the audience in the loft building of that he was where he was giving this class uh, could look out the window and follow me on the street. And I left a recording behind of what I what I was looking at and what I was saying. And I had a stopwatch, so I knew when they were hearing what I was pointing to. And this became um, something that uh, has been performing. And it is funny because all kinds of things happened that I, wouldn't, I wasn't aware of or I was aware of and didn't expect. I mean, you know, the sort of audiences uh, became part of the piece in a way that was totally unexpected. So that fit in very well with the whole concept. But that was basically the whole idea of the piece. And uh, I mean, there are parts where you're, the performers are you know, pointing to a sign and yes. or yes. literally just things on the street outside of where you were. Well, there, there um, was things I were pointing to, like I'd point to this was a soft touch cocktail lounge on East Broadway. There was a drop of paint. I knew they couldn't possibly see this drop of paint. So I was I was projecting to things that were beyond their perception. So they had to listen to it and uh, and perceive this visual information in, in that way. And I like that idea to sort of force them into this. Um, kind of point of view. And, you know, with uh, looking back with contemporary eyes, it seems like something that could almost be, it felt flash mob, as we would say today, uh, where people are interacting situationally to the environment around them, like a site-specific work of art, um, in a way, um, also to kind of be consumed of as a performance, but also as kind of media. What was the reaction like? Uh, to street dance originally. Well, Steve Paxton wasn't wasn't in uh, in the class at the time, and Robert Rauschenberg. They were in London, and I got you know messages from them. Oh, we wanted, we're so sorry we missed your dance. It sounded really good. <laughs> it sounded great, and it wasn't. It was completely site specific, but that wasn't the term used at the time. <laughs> it was it's a little bit before before that. So for me, um, that was um, great because I cared about what they thought (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah whether you were kind of looking for their i guess non of approval and i guess they did they see it eventually yes in fact robert rauschenberg said uh, can can you come do it in my loft on broadway which of course i did and i reconstructed the whole thing for for an evening that he was having you know Sort of and, and oh wow, okay. So uh, how how long? So did I that... so I got to perform it again, and it has been subsequently performed in Paris and some other places. You know, it has been reconstructed. It's been reconstructed actually with children, which was one of my favorite because they were so adorable. Each one had a had their own little site specific moment, <laughs> and uh, it was really in Paris, in Paris, in the uh, in the Pontin area. And you know, the Judson Dan- Dance Company is is so credited with sort of kicking off postmodern dance as a movement. And I'm wondering, I'd love to hear from you how you define postmodern dance, and if you could explain that to the listener. Well, I think that Merce Cunningham is, is definitely postmodern in that sense, that he's part of the was part of the contemporary art movement to, to work with ideas, as I say, had no, no narrative. And uh, the minimalist movement was beginning to emerge in New York at that time, and that was very much very important to us, uh, especially to me. And it was a long period of time before I formed a company that I worked 
alone in the studio without objects, without, you know, um, dialogues. And I think that it's um, postmodern really just means after Martha Graham, after the narrative movement of Martha Graham, you know, which is so uh, incredibly um, intense and such an, I think that's why they, uh, they objected to us because it was so radical compared to what they were doing in in the typical modern dance realm. And you know this this is also comes to uh, another production of yours, Einstein on the Beach, which I think was uh, your first work with Philip Glass, correct? Yes. And it was designed by Robert Wilson. You know, another uh, another great. Um, it was a five hour production, I believe, with no clear narrative. You'd show up around six o'clock and leave around 11 o'clock. Um, how did you tell me about how working on a, on a production of that length of that time, uh, what it was like in terms of like a creative process to do something of that kind of length and scale? Well, it, it was an enormous transition for me because I had worked, you know, as I said, in these alternative spaces, rooftops, churches, gymnasiums, streets. Uh, so this was uh, just from that point of view to be in a proscenium, a piece that was designed for a proscenium space. But I went to see Robert Wilson's work um, on Broadway, actually, Letter to Queen Victoria, I think in 1974. And um, I was really uh, fascinated with the the fact that this contemporary aesthetic could be translated into uh, this this kind of space that it no longer seemed necessary for me to be contemporary, to be just outside of that space. You could also be in it uh, because we found it objectionable to be in a framed space, you know, in the Judson days. So, But anyway, I was just fascinated with his work. And I knew of Philip Glass and had heard his music but never imagined dancing to it. So it was an enormous transition for me to work with my first composer and the first time being involved in a proscenium space and uh, production that designed for a proscenium space. And, you know, Philip Glass, obviously, uh, is so unique in the world of music. And um, what is he like personally? What is he like as, as someone to, when you, when you first met him, what was that like? To kind well, of... he, was, he was incredibly um, open and honest. And um, he, he the first, one of his first questions to me was he wanted to know if I could sing. <laughs> because the people, in the, you know, in those days, the first versions of Einstein, and we, they were limited as to how many people they could, could be involved in. And it was very important for him to have, have singers, obviously, uh, and performers for Bob. But um, I don't know. He just was someone very, very, you, you feel you could trust him completely, whatever he had to say. You feel like you trust the integrity of it. And of course, the music was wonderful to learn it the way I had to, you know, we all, we all learned the music. And to work on it was fantastic. And we continued to work together and have been working together ever since. Wow. And with a production like that, that doesn't have a clear narrative, how did you want or, I don't want to say expect, but what was your hopes that people would feel when they left, you know, at the end of the night? Like, what, what did you want them to kind of take away from that, from a piece like that? I think, I don't think I thought about that so much because um, to be part of this five-hour piece, to be dancing, to be doing text, the text of Christopher Knowles and my own text, which... <laughs> 
was part of the opera. I really was so involved in the, in the performance. Uh, I didn't really think about that so much. I know that there were people who reacted in one way or another. You know, not everybody reacted the same way. But I don't think I had any particular um, desire for any particular reaction, although I uh, don't, of course, you don't want them to walk out. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. <laughs> but they, they did, and but they would come back, so. <laughs> oh, wow, that doesn't happen if someone walks out. No, 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 I in fact, Bob they... Wilson encouraged this. He, he always said, you know, this is this is an opera, and if you, you want to go out and you want to go out, just go out and come back. And he even had a notices on the, some of the, the doors that this was perfectly acceptable and perfectly desirable. Um, you know, uh, I'm curious, you know, going back to Philip Glass for a moment, you know, as someone whose music is sort of typically associated with sort of repetitive nature and it and it builds over a long period of time you might expect him to be kind of i guess as a layman if you didn't if you'd never met him or never knew anything about him you would expect maybe him to be kind of rigid in the way that he would collaborate with someone else but i was wondering like is there um what that back and forth process was when it comes to him writing music and and you working on choreography um how the day-to-day would come together in order to um, in, to produce a, a final work where you're both sort of, of some equal importance, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, we worked, uh, of course, Einstein, the solo, the, the solo in the first act is 30 minutes, which was sometimes 35, depending on <laughs> certain things. But... Um, to to make a piece for my ensemble, for my dance group, for my for my company, I said to Philip that twenty minutes is approximately around what they could handle, and we decided on on the, the sections of the dance would be twenty minutes. All five of them were twenty minutes. They're originally five parts, and um, I, he would send music to me because everything I did is based on the music. It is the music. It's with the music, for the music, of the music. That comes first, absolutely. So I would just wait, and he would send me music, and then I was able to work with it, work on it, find material for it before the dancers, you know, actually went into rehearsal. And you know, we're we're talking now about uh, dance, uh, which is now being restaged uh, for dance reflections, um, and again also with Philip Glass, but also with Saul LeWitt, and, um, which is so exciting to kind of have uh, this sort of translated work from when you first worked with, with Saul. Like, how did that come about? And what, how did he kind of enter, enter the scene to have, you know, um, uh, an artist like that kind of as part of, you know, a performance? Well, Saul LeWitt was um, very involved in the visual arts community and also very friendly with Philip and very often helping artists, uh, some of the performing artists. And Philip suggested that we talk to him because he's, and we both agreed, if we're going to make a piece together and it's going to be presented in a theater, we should go to, we need a designer, we need a collaboration uh, for for the set or for the decor or whatever. And um, so we met with Saul. Uh, as as a result, and he 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 accepted, but he told me that it wouldn't be interesting for him to create a, a spatial object like a, a, a drop or a, 
physical object that I dance in front of. He said that that just doesn't strike me as being very interesting. And I think we almost got to the point where we felt, well, maybe this isn't going to happen. You know, we're not we're not actually going to find a way to collaborate together. But finally, in a in our future visits, because we 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 met a few times before he decided really, uh, we decided the decor has to be the dancers. And therefore, we decided on on this film that was projected, uh, which is simultaneous with the choreography that the dan- that you see on stage. The dancers on stage is simultaneous with what you see in the film. And so um, this was thrilling to me to have him do that, and he was able to come to my studio to follow my scores and to, you know, sort of already uh, have an idea of exactly what he wanted to do with with the film. Before we return to Lucinda Childs, a word from our presenting sponsor. Van Cleef and Arpels. This year, the Maison is working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to present the exhibition Garden of Green, Exquisite Jewelry by Van Cleef and Arpels, now on view in the museum's Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals until January 2024. Garden of Green showcases 44 creations from the French High Jewelry House, 32 of which are on view in the United States for the first time. A lush garden of jewelry, this impressive array of precious and ornamental stones form a dazzling journey that celebrates the beauty of gardens and nature. One area of the exhibition space highlights a diversity of green stones. Another concentrates on particular materials, such as jade, chrysoprase, and malachite. And a third displays a selection of majestic creations set with emeralds. For more information, visit amnh.org slash exhibitions. And so when you're restaging something like this, you know, and you're casting uh, and, and looking for performers, uh, what do you look like? What do you look for in performers for a piece like that that might be different from casting for other kinds of uh, productions? I saw some documentaries about about dance where people talk about how physically demanding it is um, that this particular piece, like how do you... Uh, is it different, or is that that kind of looking to cast for something like dance, like what you're looking for? Oh, I'm sure it's different. It's because there's um, stamina is an issue for 20 minutes. You know that then you can't, you don't want the energy to drop. It's sort of almost like an athletic problem that you keep the energy at a certain level so that it's sustained for the entire 20 minutes. They're on and off stage, so they have to be connected to the music. They have to know exactly where they are in the music at all times, whether they're on or off the stage. And they have to know the music. And some of them even have notes backstage um, with, with the score that I use to, to help train them. Um, <clears throat> because it's, it's very, de- very demanding. Concentration, stamina. And I'm, I'm curious because uh, there's, you know, of course, there's the stereotype of, of the demanding dance instructor or the ballet teacher um, striving for per- perfection that can never truly be met. and when you're teaching uh, younger dancers, what is going through your mind when you think about the way that things were when you were coming up? How do you? How does the your past experiences uh, as a young dancer and student, maybe in Judson or or what have you, or even as a, a young ballerina, um, how does that impact the way that you are as a as a as a teacher in, in the studio? Well, obviously, you know, with all the different teachers that I had, starting from age 10 to <laughs> um, not so many years ago, um, I had both sides of it. 
But for me, the best results for me personally came from the people who, who were encouraging, who, you know, and gave me the energy and the desire and the, the willingness uh, to, to feel that I can go ahead. And, and uh, I feel that it's my responsibility to, to make that, to, to project that. Or I feel that I can do that, and I'm, I love to do that. Are you a tough teacher? No. Oh. I'm, not, I'm not tough, but, um, you know, I'm just, it's just uh, very hard work, and I want to get them through it, and I don't want to make it harder for, for them than it has to be. But I always tell them, it's doable, you can do it, <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> and, and speaking about Philip Glass, there was a, a recent, I believe, a station for Akhenaten um, in the Riviera somewhere. Um, and there are some, if you watch the video, which I'll, again, I'll put, try to put that up online, there are some behind the scenes where you were essentially directing from a half a world away, I think, for, from the pandemic, and you were kind of uh, teleconferencing in. Uh, that must have been a challenge. Absolutely. I mean, I was um, almost at a point where I didn't know if it would be possible because I'd never done it before. The idea of Zooming, I mean, this is not a technology that's really uh, created for the kind of work that I do. But it, I had a wonderful team, uh, wonderful people. Many of them, we worked together before. And um, I don't know, everybody just seemed willing to make it happen. And then finally, I was actually physically there the following year when finally I was able to get to uh, Nice <laughs> in the Riviera. And, uh, and it, went, it went, went by very well. And when you did finally get to to go in person, did you kind of look at it up close and think, oh, wait, I would have made different decisions or now it's different now that I see it up close or I see see things in a different way? No, I, I was very happy with it. Very oh, happy with it. And, yeah. But the only thing was I was supposed to be the narrator. And since I couldn't physically be there, I had to be filmed and send the film there <laughs> to do the to do that part. And that actually worked very well, too, because we had a wonderful video people working on the production. And uh, can you explain a little bit of, of Akhenaten and kind of, uh, I guess, anyone who knows the name Akhenaten, you would know that it's about Egypt, but can you explain a little bit about um, uh, of, of what it was about? What it is well, about? Philip Glass is interested in, you know, Einstein was about the science, and um, then you, Akhenaten is a f famous Egyptian pharaoh who believed in um, a one-god system even though the tradition at that time was to have many gods. And he really resurrected this whole new way of thinking and was criticized for it, of course, and his career ended badly. But um, Philip found this very, very challenging to think of this uh, person, in some, someone very important in religion. Uh, and then you have Gandhi for political you know, sort of hero. So these three operas, Satyagraha, Akhenaten, and Einstein are all connected really in the same way of major, major figures in our world that have influenced Philip. And, you know, you've staged, you know, at least 30 productions of, of opera. And I was wondering, how would you describe the health of, of dance culture today if you had to give it a, a letter grade like we do uh, in restaurants in New York City nowadays, like what is the state of of dance today? Is it in good? Is it in good hands? Is it in good condition? Well, it depends on which side of the ocean you're on. <laughs> you know, right, I, tell, tell I, me both I, sides. I I call Van Cleef because it's French, but you say Van Cleef. I know when we talked about that, the fact 
But look, this is incredible. This French organization has supported this work, made it possible here in my country, which is, I'm thrilled because that doesn't happen very often. Most of my work, all of the uh, productions and creations have happened in Europe. Uh, so this is, this is, this is, this is uh, I would say that this state of dance here has always been a struggle uphill. Uh, the creation of the National Endowment in the 70s helped. But, you know, you could, if you were on the committees where we had to do the selection, you could select a whole group of, you know, 90 choreographers deserving of support. And they'd say, well, we don't have money for that. You know, you can only, you have to cut that down. To, you have to cut that in half. And it was so discouraging. I just felt, well, you know, um, I've been to Europe in the 70s, and that's just... A better place. There's more support for the culture, and a lot of that is Mitterrand. You know, in 1981, already doubling the budget for culture, and here in the states, the opposite was happening. So um, I've been supported in Europe, and I'm very lucky. But I also feel very happy that that something is happening here. But it's thanks to a French organization. And what do you think? What role do you think dance plays in the sort of as a public good? if you will, if we had to convince, um, you know, uh, the governor, I don't know, the governor of, of New York or someone in the White House, you know, why dance is something that should be supported. What, what do you think dance does for, for a culture? Well, I think it's, it's um, the, the art form is very fragile. And the fact that it's found its roots here, you know, with Balanchine, the tradition of Balanchine. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing with the city ballet is so popular and American ballet theater and the modern dance movement. Also, the Graham Company still exists, thank God. <laughs> you know, that uh, Cunningham, I think there's a different, a different thing that it's more that not so much that the company continues to exist, but the work continues to be given to other companies. So, that, so that's a good thing. But I think that... Um, it's not, I mean, it's not really the job of artists to explain to senators. We should have um, Ministère de la Culture. You know, we don't have any Minister of Culture. So, you know, Robert Rauschenberg went in to, to try to fight for more support and t talked about the Bauhaus and, you know, Hitler and so forth. And um, I looked, we looked at the transcript and they spelled Bauhaus, B-O-W, H-O-U-S-E. I mean, do you know what I mean? What's, yeah. what, these words are falling on <laughs> ears that are, you know, I mean, this is just not where it, it was. It was a useless waste of his time, shall I say. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering, <laughs> <laughs> no, I listen, I believe me. As, you believe as a writer, me? <laughs> I, can, I can completely understand what you, what you mean. Um, and um, what was the last uh, performance that you had nothing to do with, but maybe a last dance performance perhaps that you've seen that really inspired you? Well, I think that um, in uh, Mulhouse, which is near Strasbourg, I saw a Forsyth piece that uh, was on the same program with, with the work that I was doing. And I've always admired his work. And it's not very often that you get an opportunity to see live performances, especially of Forsyth. It's mostly, you know, and, um, you know, you, I could see them in other companies in Europe, in Germany and in Italy and in France on, on the programs with the Paris Opera and so forth. But this was a chance for me to, to see his work again. And I was, I was very, very thrilled.
to see it. It's just it's just so bold, but not um, in any way that uh, draws attention to the boldness. It just it's just marvelous. It looks so natural, and uh, some of it's just completely crazy, but perfect at the same time. It's perfection. Uh, I'm curious if there were any productions that you know were in the works over the years that perhaps you know didn't see the light of day or never made it to an actual an actual performance anything sort of uh the the near misses uh in your career that you may think back of oh i would love to resurrect that idea that never quite made it all the way to the final stages um that's that's sort of complicated (laughs) because i think that there are ups and downs i mean not every work obviously dance i never expected dance to because it was very heavily criticized to begin with in the 70 late 70s and early 80s and there were, there were people who liked it and people who didn't but um i feel that one thing leads to another in, in a kind of a chain that you can't break and you can't you know sort of give the total uh, responsibility for one piece to be uh, the only piece that you wish there's a way. I mean, it's an ongoing process, I think, and all of the pieces uh, have meant something, and they've meant something. Of course, each one means something different, but they're all important. And this might be a more uh, high-minded question as well, but um, I was wondering, as a as a lifelong choreographer um, who studies the movement of the human body and probably knows it better than anyone, when it comes to connecting it to something like street dance, I'm wondering what sort of ordinary activities in life do maybe you perceive differently as a, someone who studies dance and performs and choreo, you know, as, and as a choreographer, what do you kind of in your everyday life see differently as a choreographer? Well, I start my day with, with practice, my own practice, which is a combination of many different techniques, which I've mentioned before, the Tai Chi, the Pilates, the balletic, you know, the isometrics, all the things that I can do, so that I can continue to demonstrate and in some cases uh, perform still with the Wilson's work and also in, in Los Angeles. But um, I think that I try to take that with me into my day. And I think I'm successful in the morning and probably less successful in the afternoon and then completely unsuccessful at night. <laughs> but I try to take with me the, the posture, the feeling of, of um, enjoying enjoying to be alive, to be vertical, to be moving. And when it comes to uh, those listening out there, and maybe they get a ticket to dance one of the performances for Dance Reflections or for any piece of contemporary dance, and this might be a weird question, but how should you consume uh, dance as a, as a viewer, as, as an audience member? How, you know, is there anything you've ever wanted to just grab the people in the audience and say, please pay attention to this part, or this is how I would wish you could kind of just absorb. Is there any kind of advice you would give for someone who like really wants to, to enjoy? Yeah, but that's that's a good question, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's necessary to tell these people who are coming. There's no story, you know, there are couples dancing, but it's abstract. I don't think you have to tell them that. And I don't think you have to tell them that they're not going to see bravura technique. They're not going to see fouettes and pirouettes and leaps. And they're going to see a kind of a athletic, balletic movement style that's um, 
in some ways a little bit pedestrian, but not entirely. It's really found movement. I mean, it's a whole different concept. And the whole conceptual idea of it, I think, re registers more. They know it's going to be repetition, but they, do, they know that repetition doesn't mean that I'm going to see the same thing over and over again. It's just the opposite. You're going to see the same thing, but always in a different way. And I don't think you need to say that to people right now. I think people are sort of onto that, and they get it, and they like the conceptual aspect of it. And I was wondering, was there ever a dance performance you've seen uh, that made you cry? Uh, yeah, I guess almost the, um, yes, I think so, yes. Do you remember which one? Well, seeing Graham, Martha Graham do a, do a curtain call is enough to make someone cry. I'm sure, I, I'm sure I was not the only one crying. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to, to ask you what dance means to you in three words what would you say it's my life thank you once again to this episode's presenting sponsor van cleef and arpels the jewelry of this legendary maison is characterized by a distinctive blend of poetry and refinement with its iconic jewelry collections it is an invitation to a timeless universe of beauty and harmony you can discover more at van that's V-A-N-C-L-E-E-F-A-R-P-E-L-S dot com. And a special thanks to our guest, Lucinda Childs, and to the team behind Dance Reflections for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.